The diligent farmer plants trees, of which he himself will never see the fruit. Cicero. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I'm your host. I'd like to thank everyone who's dropping by this week. Uh, I hope you are having a good uh, first week, I guess full week, um, back here uh, to the new year. Uh, new season for us again, the uh, second episode of the new season, and uh, it's off to a big start. Uh, and hopefully, it's only going to be getting uh, bigger for me. Um, I've finally gotten my Apple ID issues sorted out, and I've finally been able to get the show uploaded to iTunes after uh, two years, essentially, or close to two years. The, I think the actually the um, the two year anniversary is next week. I think uh, next uh, next month uh, next Monday actually. Um, I don't have anything really big planned, just another standard episode. So, um, if Apple ID is your, or excuse me, iTunes is your platform of choice, um, there you go. And, uh, hopefully this will bring in some new listeners as well. Um, I know that there are a couple of other sites that use kind of iTunes as like their audio source. I think Good Pods is one. I'm going to try and take control there uh, if it ever gets published there, um, but we're, we're going to have to see. So hopefully there will be some new platforms, some new listeners coming in, um, but even before uh, this episode went up on iTunes, um, very, very uh, well listened to episode. I think um, it was over 40 uh, downloads uh, just to just to like 24 hours after, so um very, very big episode, and I hope uh, hope people will continue to listen and enjoy. And if this is your first episode, hopefully, uh, I hope you enjoy the show as much as uh, some of my regular viewers have been, so um, or listeners. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, yeah, welcome. And uh, for those who continue to listen, again, I appreciate you guys as always. This week, we're going to be continuing our, uh, I guess, our specialization episodes uh, before we move into specific peoples and places um, for uh, 6000 to 4000 BC or BCE. Um, This week, we're going to be talking about the new plants that humans are beginning to uh, tame and engineer. Uh, We did one of these last season, uh, and we're going to continue kind of going over that uh, for this season. Uh, now, I think there, this might be a multi-part uh, kind of thing. Uh, I had planned on kind of doing um, maybe one or two episodes, but it might be end up being a little bit more than that. There were a little bit more plants that I, was, um, I wasn't expecting to be domesticated this early. Uh, and there's some that I'm not 100% sure. And I don't think people are in general 100% sure when exactly they were um, domesticated. So I'm going to try to be going through that as best I can. So, um, now I think it goes without saying that all of these plants or their wild ancestors that I'm going to be talking about uh, had been consumed and used by man prior to this uh, domestication process starting, but uh, I'm going to state that here just in case. I do think I should also remind everyone, though, that getting an exact date on when the crops being grown are true domesticates is extremely difficult to pin down because early domesticated varieties may not be much different from their wild cousins. 
So again, the dates on these may be a few hundred years older or younger than what I'm giving. Um, <clears throat> and examples of this that I'll be going into later uh, is potatoes and corn. Uh, both may have been domesticated before last season ended, or they may only be truly domesticated once this season gets gets going, basically, you know, in 100 to 500 years after the fact. For now, though, we're going to focus on uh, talk of agriculture in Africa. Now, as we talked about in several episodes, Africa's climate has seen far less variation during uh, Homo sapiens' existence, and it has mostly escaped uh, the effects of the Younger Dryas, uh, which you know affected uh, North America, Europe, uh, and uh, North Asia far more than you know it did affect um, anything, I guess, uh, in Africa or to the south. But there was some. Uh, environmental changes outside of Africa. Africa saw a little bit, but by and large, it's it's not really changing too much. Um, and you know, and again, that's not just climatically; that's ecologically as well. Uh, and of course, necessity being the mother of invention, and you know, by and large, most people living in Africa this season haven't had to shift from our traditional hunter-gatherer mindset. Um, and it's true that the number of megafauna had decreased in Africa, but they were still there. And in some cases, there are still megafauna living there today, uh, the elephant being a prime example. Of course, though, again, these are reduced numbers. So most humans living in Africa didn't need to experiment with agriculture just yet. Uh, however, uh, that day will be coming fast and by the end of the season, they will begin to make their own progress to horticulture and then into true agriculture. Uh, now, indigenous African agriculture emerges in three areas. The Sahel, West Africa, and in and around the Ethiopian highlands. Now, I am not including the Nile in this despite it being in Africa because the evidence for agriculture found there shows that they were growing crops almost entirely from uh, West Asia, the Middle East, what have you, whatever you want to call that area. And, but again, they're going to kind of get uh, more focused later. Um, and it is uh, that that's the reason that Africa kind of isn't considered a... Um, a cradle for agricultural expansion because most of the crops that Africa uses uh, stay in Africa. They don't begin to expand out of Africa until much later than, say, the crops grown in the Middle East. The Middle East, they've already domesticated wheat and barley uh, and they've exported it again to Africa. They've ex started exporting it to Europe. And there is evidence, again, that they're also exporting it to uh, other parts of Asia. And then you have the um, uh, agriculture centers in China, or what is now China. Uh, they are going to be exporting their crops north and south, and a little bit to the east and west as well. And then, of course, uh, we've talked about corn a little bit, uh, or maize, uh, the technical term for it. That starts, of course, very 
localized in Mexico, and then that spreads out uh, into the rest of South America and then into North America. So Africa's crops take a little bit longer to exit the continent. That's why they aren't usually grouped in. Well, there are other reasons, but that's why I'm not including them, because their crops don't reach out of Africa until later in human history. And even then, uh, only really East African crops escape, uh, or not escape, but are uh, uh, taken out of Africa, uh, you know, in later periods. And then, of course, you have the colonial and the um, explorational period by European peoples. Uh, that's another big factor in spreading West African crops to the rest of the world. Uh, but we'll get to all of that much, much later. So. Um, I do need to point out that it is possible that early agriculture could have been practiced by groups living in what is now the Sahara Desert because at this time it was still temperate enough in many places to have you know tried to practice agriculture. It may have been you know it, or it would have been very similar to the Sahel and even more green and fertile. Uh, uh, where there were rivers, streams, ponds, and lakes. Of course, uh, desertification of the area makes archaeology hard, so I don't know that we will ever find much evidence dating to this time in the Sahara region, uh, but I would not be surprised in the least that if one day it was discovered that some peoples were practicing some kind of that early horticulture or semi-sedentary seasonal agriculture. And the spread of the desert is probably one of the factors that led to the rise of agriculture in West Africa and the Sahel. People having to move west and south in greater numbers for longer and longer periods, uh, meeting uh, peoples that were already living in those places, probably put huge strains on the resources in the areas to the east and south. So that is probably one of the big necessities that we talk about uh, enforcing uh, uh, the kind of the spread of agriculture. Uh, now, in terms of crops, they were working with and starting to domesticate. Uh, the first big one we should mention is sorghum, or it is also sometimes called as broom corn. Uh, there are around thirty varieties of this worldwide, and uh, worldwide, excuse me, and that includes uh, wild species. Uh, some strains were domesticated outside of Africa slightly later, but the oldest domesticated strains were, we have found were located uh, near the Gash River in what is now the Sudan, uh, near the modern city of Kassala. Now, other groups in Africa domesticated their own strains later, uh, but again, this is, this is a couple of thousand years from this period. Now, the uh, oldest domesticated strains that we have can be dated to about 3500 BC. And there's a mix of wild and semi-domesticated species uh, dating back to between 5 and 4000 BC uh, near the same site. And sorghum, like corn, is technically speaking a grass. Uh, some varieties are used as animal feed and others are used for more human consumption. Um, uh, the sprigs uh, that kind of shoot off from the stalk have been used to make dusters, sweepers, and brooms, hence the name of broomcorn. 
Now, sorghum is uh, very, very tolerant of heat, uh, so it is well suited to growing in arid or semi-arid environments. And uh, it should be noted that um, although uh, early in the growth process, it can be dangerous for humans and animals to eat, it does eventually, of course, mature and it is, um, you know, it's safer to eat. Um, but the reason you can't eat it in early in their growth process is because they have a lot of nitrate and cyanide during kind of the early stages of its development. So if you eat too much of it uh, too early in its growth process, uh, you will die or you will kill animals if you feed it to them enough. Uh, though eventually kind of the pearls or seeds uh, become milky and opaque and then you can eat them directly. Um, though, uh, uh, eventually if you let them, you know, mature too long, they begin to taste bad and then you need to either grind them into flour or boil them and eat them like nuts. We talked about that kind of with the, the important of pot, the importance of pottery. Now, um, people in several regions have also, uh, used their, the leaves of these plants uh, to develop dyes. Uh, so that gives another use to growing sorghum in addition to their substantial uh, nutritional value. Uh, most of these dyes are green, which you would expect from leaves, uh, but there is a variety of uh, sorghum in Nigeria that has red leaves, and so they use that to make a very vibrant uh, red dye. And of course, uh, today, uh, sorghum, I believe, is the fifth most grown cereal crop in the world. And I believe uh, Africa has two of the top five producing. I think it's Africa. I need to double check that. I didn't include that in my notes, but I think I remember seeing that. I believe, though, the United States does grow the most uh, sorghum today, though it is not any uh, African strain. Uh, because there's nowhere uh, arid enough, I think, to kind of properly grow that. Uh, now, the next plant I'm going to talk about uh, is going to be a little bit more controversial for a couple of reasons. Uh, but I feel that it does merit a mention. Um, the primary reason that this is kind of controversial is that uh, its exact date that it became domesticated isn't known. Uh, in fact, I don't think um, this plant, in fact, I know this plant doesn't enter the historical record until the 1400s. Uh, the other reason that it will be controversial is that it ha as time has gone on, um, the plant uh, has um, been abused by both individuals and groups uh, to something that is um, you know, not necessarily something that is uh, for survival or health, it is something that is used uh, a bit more maliciously. Uh, this plant is cot. And cot grows from shrub-like trees. Uh, it's native to eastern and southern Africa. And they can be anywhere between 3 and six feet, 16 feet uh, tall, which is, uh, I believe, between 1 and 5 meters now, cot isn't a foodstuff, excuse me, like most of the plants that I've talked about, but it is also a very different kind, uh, but it, it's similar to flax in that it is being grown and domesticated uh, for a purpose that is not food. Um, so it's kind of, um, 
it's a non-food crop, but it is uh, an important one that is domesticated. Uh, and I talked about it, uh, flax, in last season's plant domestications episode. So uh, I felt I kind of needed to do something that showed um, that all the crops being grown in Africa kind of also fall into this kind of secondary usage or, you know, a usage that's not primarily nutritional. Now, again, the plant's domestication date is extremely debated slash mysterious, but we have been using the wild variety in at least some small doses, if not more, for probably our entire existence, or at least um, the people living where the plant grows have been using it. I'm personally of the opinion that since agriculture is emerging in the Ethiopian highlands at this time, there is a greater than 0% chance that humans weren't trying to control the cot trees in the same way they were trying to control other important plants. And this would probably not be a particularly hard task. Uh, Cot trees don't really require any maintenance or care beyond water and sun. It takes around... um, Uh, Eight years for them to be fully grown, but they can produce some uh, usable uh, plants or uh, leaves before they mature. Um, Also, fully grown trees can be harvested up to four times a year. So you have a tree that doesn't require much work, and when fully grown, it can produce uh, useful products year-round. So it's an ideal plant for migrating semi-sedentary groups. So, yeah, I I think it probably is at this earlier date range that at least some type of horticulture was being practiced. Now we come to why cot was grown. Uh, It is a stimulant uh, containing cathinine, uh, and this provides a euphoric feeling. It suppresses hunger and gives energy boosts. It can also be used as a painkiller and can increase libido as well. Uh, You can chew the leaves or dry them to make tea. Uh, You can then crush them up, uh, make pastes or creams. Uh, And then for the softer parts of the stems, you can add them to gum uh, to flavor it or include it with fried or boiled nuts to kind of help soften their shells and, you know, give them a little little bit more flavor. Uh, now, cot can have several harmful side effects like constipation, insomnia, impotency. Uh, if you use it too much, if you abuse it, it can also cause um, much more uh, visceral health problems. Uh, for prolonged use, it can cause uh, some forms of psychosis. Uh, it can also lead to cancers. Uh, now, uh, that requires quite a lot of use of it uh, and it will you know uh, it's not necessarily you know there are a lot of plants that if you abuse them it can lead to severe health effects Um, it's uh, kind of one of the precursors to coffee in terms of like stimulants Uh, it's not as addictive as some uh, have made it out to be. However, uh, certain cultures that prohibit stronger stimulants, uh, cot kind of does not fall within those prohibitions. Uh, you, for example, uh, for example, Islam. Um, there are certain plants and uh, things that they can't have. Uh, beer, for instance, uh, fermented wheat. Uh, 
Cot kind of gets around those prohibitions. Um, and Cot is it is similar in terms of uh, addictiveness to things like coffee or something along those lines, though its health of the negative health effects are a bit uh, worse than, of course, coffee or uh, something like that. Um, And it can also, uh, it's a little bit of a controversy because uh, it is a very big cash crop in a lot of East African countries, but there are countries that treat it like narcotics uh it is not quite as bad as all the you know as as narcotics as a whole um and again it's not quite as habit forming but there are people that believe the uh benefits of cot usage uh far outweigh its negative effects and this is something that's heavily debated there are parts of the world that have outlawed it there are parts of the world you know where it's frowned on but not out and out uh, outlawed, um, but it is, you know, it is a traditional kind of um, social lubricant, I guess, for lack of a better term. There are cultures that uh, where men will kind of congregate and chew cot together and talk, and uh, kind of like a you know a early coffee house. And there are those and uh, places in Africa, very traditional cultures that use cot along with other substances, uh, with cot to kind of, um, as kind of like a religious, uh, religious, uh, part of their religious ceremonies, things to kind of help them open themselves up to, uh, the spiritual world, uh, to the ancestors, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, it is very important, uh, to those people and uh, it was important to uh, the humans living at that area at that you know at this time and even earlier and it will continue to be important so i felt like i should include cot even though the date might be slightly off and uh, because again it is frowned on by some societies now uh, the next crop uh, that we're going to talk about is also uh, from east africa it is again one of those uh, Horn of Africa crops, uh, or you know what is now Ethiopia, Etruria, uh, Somalia, those kind of places. Uh, it is teff. Uh, teff is a grass like sorghum, although it is uh, it looks a lot different. It almost looks like in some cases weeds, although it of course gets much longer. Uh, teff is mostly used as animal feed, though. It does uh, have uses for cooking and is used to prepare dishes uh, in East Africa. Now, teff is also one of those that's a little hard to place. I think 4000 BC is right around the the earliest time it could have appeared. Uh, But uh, I think, again, this is one of those cases where at least the wild version of teff is definitely in use at this earlier point at this early period and it would not surprise me for the earlier dates to be correct hence why i am including it in this episode uh now teff is uh it's actually very useful because it uses um its seeds are very small uh and it it grows a lot from even just you know uh uh, one seed grows a very a fairly large shoot, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, so uh, you can plant a lot of seeds in a very small area. 
which is again why it is very useful. Now it doesn't get very tall. Uh, I don't think it gets too much above your ankles. So it is very labor intensive to pull up if you're harvesting it by hand, uh, which again kind of makes it why you don't see t- you don't see it grown too much as a crop for humans to eat. Uh, it is something that humans, of course, can and do eat, uh, but it's kind of like a complementary. It's used as a base. You include other things with it. Uh, typically, though, you'll see mostly uh, animals kind of uh, using it as fodder, eating it directly uh, from fields. Uh, so um, it's very similar to quinoa, if uh, people are familiar to that, although it doesn't have quite as much uh, flowering and shoots as quinoa does. Uh, it, if you saw it, you would you would just think it was a, you know, just like overgrown grass. Someone hadn't really uh, cut their grass, essentially, if you saw it in the wild. Uh, it is still mostly grown almost entirely in Ethiopia. I think they, they grow over 90% of it there. Though there are places outside of Ethiopia that have begun to grow it. I think um, I think places in uh, Spain have grown it. Uh, there are even parts of the United States. I think out in Nevada and California, uh, and I think a couple places in Texas too uh, that that use it. So uh, that is uh, another one of the big um, East African crops that is uh, at the very least beginning that domestication process here this season. Uh, Now, there are three other crops that I'm going to mention. I'm not including them, though, like in detail, because I think the very earliest that we have evidence of the, I guess, the domestication process starting uh, is about 3,500. So they're, you know, they're probably increasing their usage of the wild varieties um, at the very end of this season, so right around 4000 BC, but there's no evidence of semi-domesticated strain till, you know, 3500 maybe, give or take. Um, but those are um, Nug or uh, Ramtal, uh, or Ramtila is another term for it. Uh, they have a plantain called Incente uh, that they are are uh, that they will domesticate in the area, as well as their own version of uh, millet uh, that's going to be uh, grown in the area. Uh, also, coffee uh, is probably uh, in that group as well. Uh, and again, I'm not going to go into detail on those crops because, again, there's no evidence that they've started to even try to domesticate it during this season but those will probably well those will be included on next season's episode focusing on uh this region uh so uh we've knocked out uh sorghum uh which is technically a sahil crop as i said it grows in the sudan uh the sahil is not quite as um uh widespread as it is today again it's generally greener uh but that's the big crop that emerges in um the Sahil agriculture region and those crops that we've talked about in um, Ethiopia or the the Horn of Africa region, uh, those are all you know domesticated uh, at around this time. Uh, in terms of um, West African crops, which again, as I mentioned, is is its own kind of agricultural, uh, well, uh, <laughs> a, gr- a ground. Um, 
it has its own set of crops and plants that are being domesticated. Uh, there isn't much cause for uh, domestication to arise there just yet. Uh, in fact, the only crop that I could find that there is um, considerable evidence that they're, um, again, in these early stages of horticulture slash agriculture in West Africa uh, at this season is the yam, uh, which... Uh, for those that don't know, yam is a tuber. Uh, they can stay in the ground for a couple of years before they eventually rot away. So, you know, this is something that would be very beneficial to a group of nomads. Uh, you know, you, you know, hey, we can come here next year. These crops are still going to be here. We'll be fine. You know, it, it's a way to, it's a long-term storage device, essentially. Um, and they'll still grow uh you you leave them longer they'll grow more uh, so you'll have more food so uh the yam is really the only one uh that's being domesticated this season in west africa of course next season you're going to see a much larger explosion of domesticated crops in this area because again uh more people moving into the area due to the desertification of the sahara um so uh, keep that in mind. So those are the big three regions of African indigenous uh, agriculture. Um, and um, yeah, so that's kind of what we're looking at for uh, plant domestication in Africa at this period. Um, we will have a little bit more to discuss uh, next week when we talk about uh Asian uh, domestication. Uh, that one might be a two-parter for Asia. We'll have to see. Um, but yeah, so that's that's what we see uh, for Africa at this period of time when it comes to um, uh, plant domestication. Uh, I think there's going to be a little bit more to talk about. Well, I'll, I'll hold off on that. I'm, I'm not going to dive too much too much more into uh, that sort of thing until we get there but uh yeah so africa again there hasn't really been a need for uh domestication to take place uh in terms of population numbers south africa which doesn't have like its own kind of uh, at least as far as i'm aware uh and I haven't read any literature on it. It doesn't have kind of any inborn agriculture. Most agriculture in South Africa is imported from people coming down from West Africa and in some cases East Africa. So, uh, but the people living in Southern Africa, they're probably uh, doing better than anyone else in the world in terms of health, longevity, and maybe even in population, uh, which is something we'll, we'll talk about. Um, or at least a healthy population. Uh, we'll we'll get into that when we get to uh, the the spread of agriculture and why it is uh, so rapid uh, when we get there. Uh, but yeah, so I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, it's a little bit. Uh, I thought I would be able to stretch it out a little bit more, but about thirty minutes. That's a good episode. I feel like. Um, if anyone has any questions or comments, please feel free. Uh, I'm always looking for feedback. Uh, I didn't get any from, uh, at least didn't get any critical or uh, questioning comments from last week's episode. Um, so uh, just, you know, standard people saying, hey, enjoy the episode, that kind of thing. So um, if you do have any 
anything you'd like to ask or bring up or just, you know, again, constructive criticism is also always welcome. Uh, please feel free to drop me an email at waradrevpod at gmail.com. You can uh, also direct message me on Twitter slash X. Uh, you can also comment on my YouTube videos. I do read the comments there. Uh, I like to respond to those as quickly as possible. Um, I'm at 95 subscribers on YouTube. Uh, it would be very helpful if uh, anyone that has a YouTube account could subscribe there. I'd appreciate it a lot. Um, and uh, if you'd like to see my ugly mug, I do stream uh, on YouTube. I, I try to do historical slash wargaming stuff. Um, some horror stuff, some fantasy stuff. I just... Uh, Today I just completed my playthrough of uh, Plague's Tale Innocence, which is a um, kind of a fantasy uh, medieval horror game uh, set during the Black uh, Black Plague, Hundred Years' War period, I think 1348 in France. Um, I just, uh, that was a two-day stream. I, I did it some yesterday, did it today. Had a couple of random crashes, so the videos are broken up into weird uh, portions. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I had a really fun time with it, um, and I'll be playing the sequel probably, uh, if not next week, the week after, um, but yeah, uh, thank you all for listening, I hope you've enjoyed, I hope you have a good, uh, Monday and the rest of your week whenever you're listening to this, and I will see you all next week, where we'll continue going over some more domestication, uh, events, uh, in Asia. So yeah, thank you all for joining me. Have a good day. Goodbye.